Hello everyone and welcome to Embracing Crazy. I'm Torald Corrin. Well, it's wonderful to be here after three weeks in between episodes. It's been a uh, quite a wild dynamic time for me, uh, traveling, teaching at Esalen, first in-person event for a year and a half, and also releasing and launching our course, Reclaiming Your Big Voice and starting other work in the world. Uh, all of our work is centered around helping people behaviorally form new relationships to their voices, their their big expression and creativity in the world. In so many ways, it's this work housed within music, voice, and song. It's been quite the three weeks, and the one thing I wanted to share was, for me, when I've been this busy, it's so important that I embrace the parts of me that are, have been uncomfortable, maybe physically exhausted. And sometimes it's that reminder that at any point, whether it's positive, uh, positive stuff that you're up to in the world that's just all-consuming, or whether it's traumatic moments that life can sometimes make us exhale without inhaling, and when we don't take enough time to inhale, we can be taxed physically, mentally, or emotionally. And sometimes that can trigger certain things, uh, whether it's mental, emotional, or physical. And that in so many ways, the same thing our body and our minds are asking us, which is to, can we come home to these bodies? And can we embrace the uncomfortabilities we feel and let our bodies heal, metabolize, digest? And full disclosure, that's what I'm doing today. I'm quite exhausted from the last few weeks and facing that there's some healing for me to do physically. And what better episode to share today in that conversation than my amazing conversation. Today on the podcast, I'm with Dr. Joan Rosenberg. Joan and I met a few years back. We're both members of transformational leadership called the Association of Transformational Leaders here in California. And I immediately heard her speak at an event and was incredibly blown away that we were really entering the same palace from different doorways around our feelings on uncomfortable feelings, on how we could possibly relate to those things that so often we feel like we need to get rid of, cut out, disconnect from. And Joan is a remarkable, remarkable voice on something that is possible for each of us, a new relationship to being uncomfortable. Dr. Joan Rosenberg is a psychologist and a speaker and an author. In fact, she, we talk about her book, her latest book, 90 Seconds to a Life You Love, How to Master Your Difficult Feelings to Cultivate Lasting Confidence, Resilience, and Authenticity. She also is the creator of Emotional Mastery, her take on forming new relationships to feeling emotions and how to navigate through those for that to become actually your gift, your superpower. Joan and I talk at length about relating to being uncomfortable. How do we embrace being uncomfortable? How do we really allow our bodies to go through difficult feelings in real time? Uh, we lean into really what we've both been through, what Joan went through in her life to 
help her arrive at this work in the world. And more than anything, we just have a great time forming a new way to talk about being in fear, being in vulnerable states and embracing them and getting to allow them to be new friends. So without further ado, I bring you Dr. Joan Rosenberg. Dr. Joan Rosenberg, welcome to Embracing Crazy. It's such, ah, thank you. such an honor to have you. And I've been dreaming uh, of having you as a guest as soon as I b- began this idea that I knew that uh, I would ask you immediately. And thank you so much for graciously saying yes and joining me in this conversation. I'm, uh, I was actually very thrilled to see your name come across my, my email list and uh, making the ask. So I remember us talking about this. And, and so I'm, I'm ex- super excited to be here with you. Thank you. Equally, equally as honored. Ah, lucky me. Well, to me, all of our conversations so far, even just getting a chance to meet you a, a number of years ago, we're shared members of a transformational leadership council and immediately looking into your work and hearing you speak on the subject of something that seems so profoundly uncommon and yet universally experienced uh, the notion of unpleasant feelings. And as soon as you opened your mouth, when you're giving your keynote to us all in the room, and you started to speak to unpleasant feelings, uncomfortable feelings, and what it takes to essentially re-embrace them, Mm -hmm. uh, to move through them, and to come to a place where our bodies and minds get to come through that and live an incredible life again on the other side of those feelings you 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 took us on a journey of your own life and i was uh immediately immediately with you in every way so thank you for joining us and being in that conversation with me i would love to start at the beginning if it's possible how on earth did you arrive at this beautiful work in your life when you're a kid um, what happened so beautifully to open you to this work now you know, it's I, what I like to say, Torald, is that there were two kind of major questions that I wrestled with, and they, they came totally out of my life experience. I started out actually starting school at a very young age. So I, I think I was kind of on the edge of uh, five, but I started kindergarten at four. Wow. And, <clears throat> and But I started late. But the school year had already started, and so I'm 10, 10, week, 10 days, two weeks in or something like that. <clears throat> and that start was probably representative of much of the rest of my life. So because already I wasn't fitting in. Right. So I, 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 and that was kind of my life script, if you will, for a very long time. So it, I was very shy, very sensitive, and a quiet kid. And there I was starting school super early, which made me also the youngest and smallest in my class and a little bit more vulnerable probably because of that. And with the scripts that I was running at that point, um, perhaps even at four on through childhood into adolescence was this one of kind of not belonging and not fitting in. Right. And, And so there I was trying to negotiate all of that. And and certainly as I aged, you know, into later childhood, into adolescence, I was also bullied. So I have that part of my life experience. And that can, that continued for years. <clears throat> and the, 
um, what, what I would do is I would look over at my peers and I'd see a group of them kind of standing and laughing. Mm. And uh, so everybody there, again, was this quality of belonging. Mm. And it was also this idea of confidence. So it's like, I wanted what they had. And, and it's like, but I didn't have it. And, you know, I also early realized that just going and trying to stand next to them, it was not going to happen through osmosis. Right. right? <laughs> I was not going to, just because I stood next to them, I wasn't going to get what they had. And, and so the first question that I really wrestled with was what made it so, uh, what, uh, how does someone develop confidence? Right. And again, because that wasn't an, that wasn't my experience. And then as I got into my professional life as a psychologist, I as I was engaging with people, I, I, you know, I know that our thinking can really get in our way and mess us up. But what I found is that one's difficulty handling unpleasant feelings seemed to mess up life more. Yes. And and it was like um, it, that that my experience was that someone didn't feel capable of actually facing life or handling life, whatever that means to any one of us, if they didn't handle unpleasant feelings well. So the second question that kind of emerged for me was, well, what makes it so difficult for people to handle unpleasant feelings? Hmm. And and as it turns out over, the, and I will say decades at this point, over the decades of my work, what I was able to make sense of is that the answer to that second question about unpleasant feelings and, and how we handle them, that that acts as the foundational answer to confidence. So so that's really kind of how the work all emerged. How amazing. You know, I, I'm still so blown away that something so simple, so profound can be so easily forgotten, forgotten by our own biology, really. Our, our biology, to me, and in my experience going through such critical mental illness was that the first thing to go out the window was this idea that I could handle feeling the uncomfortability mm-hmm. that I was feeling. In fact, if I really unpack my experience with OCD, which to me really is an acute version of what so many of us experience, you know, on the anxiety spectrum, you know, if we naturally have a proclivity to obsessive and anxiety feelings, that that being so acute, my main issue was was the trigger of, oh, no, I can't feel that, really. Mm. That's going to be too much to feel. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Even if the subject changed, really underneath it was this fear of feeling that much. Mm. And my really, I, w- I moved to disassociate from having to feel that, really. And so right, a yeah. disassociation could be avoidance, obviously, or trying to find relief to make it go away, or either one. What in your you know not just professional opinion but as a, as a as a woman in your life coming through being shy being bullied and stepping in through this incredible work that you've done now and are doing what do you think happens to us as human beings to make us so hardwired to avoid feeling uncomfortable what is it well i think if i look at some of the neuroscience behind it i mean what i've come to understand or believe you know is it, there's a couple of important points for me to kind of highlight here to make sense of your question or to answer your question <clears throat> the first is to to help people understand it's like we're one unified whole right we're not a we're not a mind and a brain in a head that's just sitting atop a body that's totally disconnected from that body right so so that's like the first thing to get and and 
we're we're one unified whole and many people in fact will describe the body as the subconscious mind right which is kind of interesting in and of itself but what i again as i was looking at the neuroscience research the second main point that kind of came out of that was not not only are we this one unified whole again which many spoke to you know centuries and years ago or thousands of years ago but but that most of us come to know what we're feeling emotionally through bodily sensation yes right and and so think of embarrassment for a moment so if if i was embarrassed you would see the redness in my face i would feel the heat if you will the bodily sensation of heat or let's say when i get angry i tighten my jaw hmm. or i hold my fists tighter or something right or my muscles tighten up someplace or uh or maybe when i get sad or disappointed there's this kind of downward sensation in my chest and or an intensity of, of pressure on top of that for one one for sadness the other for disappointment right? right so and i will have clients describe things like um heat in their arms or heat at the back of their neck for anger so it's different for each one of us but what i realized from this is that it wasn't that we didn't want to experience the whole range of what we felt i actually really believe we all want to feel the whole range hmm. It's that we didn't want to feel the bodily sensations that let us know what we were feeling emotionally. Huh. And so what all of us were trying to get away from, me included, I'll raise my hand on that one too, right? That that I, because disappointment was particularly hard for me, especially in my, in my grade school, middle school, and high school years. Right. That, that it's like, that's what we wanted to get away from was the bodily sensation that helped us know what we were feeling. Hmm. And, and if I could help people understand that it was the bodily sensation, that was the, that's, that's what we were avoiding. And that it was a short lived bodily sensation. Then I could help people lean into the feeling itself. That's and amazing. that's when things really kind of made much more sense in terms of my work. That's fantastic. Would you say, Joan, that there may have been another time, you know, and I've thought a lot about this um, as I, you know, write and do more around, you know, just our behavior, our behavioral relationship to our own sensations, thoughts, feelings that automatically arise, you know, within us, which is exactly what we're talking about. The more I kind of look at it, the more I thought to myself as I came through it, surely we forgot some ancient knowledge that, mm -hmm. you know, what happened to those classrooms or parents that said, okay, you're going to feel a lot of crazy, uncomfortable, almost warlike things in your body. And your first inclination is that the same body you're in is going to want to avoid quickly that experience. But here's what you have to do. The trick right. is, right. that's when you lean in. Now, yes. of course, there might be some parents out there saying, that's exactly what I was taught by my dad and I became a competitive Olympic swimmer or, mm. you know, some people just passed this on. However, what I find is most people didn't get that knowledge at all. Oh no! Most of no. us, it literally not only went over our heads, but we believed every thought, feeling, sensation or emotion we had was us, but which is sort of a more advanced take on it. But the simple part is we've each taught each other to not be uncomfortable, or if we're uncomfortable, to get out of it as soon as possible. 
what do you believe happened there? Why do you feel like as a global culture we've become so afraid of being uncomfortable? Well, that's a big question. Um, why have we become... Like, why, why did we... Why do you think as a human being in the first place we avoid feeling uncomfortable? What do you, what do you feel like is the, the reason that we, we've spent so long just avoiding going toward those parts of us that we each have? You know, I mean, I, I would say if we look a, a globally, kind of across culture... Um, there's many cultures that um, that actually shut down on feeling, mm. right? So, and and there's the, also the distinction to be made between those cultures that tend to be more collective cultures, that some, some that some collective cultures being more expressive, and other cultures being more uh, more restrictive. Right. Right. So, so, and, and it's because what, what we then get into is, am I going to dismiss what my experience is to serve the greater good? Right. And now I, now I'm dismissing my true self, which I think comes at great cost for the individual. Yes. Um, Or it can, again, it can go both directions. So, and, you know, it's the, every, if we look at the way, um, our culture, though broadly speaking, kind of globally, everything has increased in speed. Yeah. Right. And uh, so it it was it became what can we do that will allow us to make something more efficient, and in many cases speedier, if yeah, you right. will, and um, that it makes it so we don't have to work so hard to do it, right. Right. So, I mean, I know that many people consistently and in, in especially over the past 10 to 15 years talk about the the amount of time people will stay focused on something. Right. Right. That the level our level of distraction is at an all time high. But I think that we've been kind of um, marketed into that. Mm-hmm. I actually don't really believe it. I, I, I believe that if one wants to sustain attention on something, they will. Right. And but but from a marketing standpoint, um, that's where everything is going faster, um, more distracted, lazier. Don't have to do it for yourself. Someone else can do it for you. Yeah. And and so if we have that kind of um, ethos, if you will, yeah. then we're going to move further and further away from so ourselves. In so many ways, you know, what you're saying is it's the it's like the relief mindset, right? We've passed on to multiple generations uh, to each other over multiple generations we've passed on the you know get it done you know get it fixed and get relief right yes you know and but you know but where my head just went a moment ago was that then I started to think of course like things like the Holocaust in the 40s right, right? so if we look at more recent relative recent history um, then there's an enormous amount of pain yeah Right. So, so who's going to want to stay in that pain? Hmm. Right. We have World War One. We have World War Two, and we've got all sorts of wars in between. If we just go back 120 years, right, um, and if we go back before that, we're going to hit other generations of the same thing. Hmm. Or, or we look at um, if we look at uh, indigenous peoples or people of color, then then we have slavery and people being robbed of their land. So again, who's going to want to stay in that kind of pain? Wow. 
when you put so it in that perspective, you know, there might be a very sort of natural, you know, and very obvious reason that we we formed the kind of relationship to avoid unpleasant feelings. Um, and that makes sense. And then, you know, behaviorally, we get used to, we form habits to right. to relieve and avoid. So we form habits everywhere, right? So that makes sense. So what's the, how would you, when you see someone who has lived a life where they've, um, you know, stepped away from feeling the uncomfortable feelings as best they can, they've moved to mm-hmm. avoid, to re- to relieve, and to shut off that part of themselves, or entirely disassociate from what's in front of them. How do you how do you coax them back? What would you what would you say to someone who's been too afraid to feel the unpleasant feelings? Or how do you how do you guide someone there? Well, I I think that when we disconnect, that we start down a path that I call soulful depression, and that there's there's stops along the way, if you will. And and so the first stop the first stop is just simply the distraction, and and if that continues, so di- what does distraction look like? Well, distraction could be substance use, it could be social media and screens, could be sex, could be pornography, could be shopping, could be food, could be having feelings about having feelings. Yeah, right. It, there's I think I in, in the book that I put out, I, I think there's like 35 different ways I name that we can distract ourselves. That's the first level. Then we move into a place where I think we feel more anxiety or more bodily sensations. Yeah. And and so our bodily complaints, I got neck ache or back ache or stomach ache or whatever it is. And and then or I feel no control, less control, out of control. Yeah. And then it moves further down to um, feeling kind of split off from myself. And if I'm starting to feel split off from myself because I've stayed so distracted for so long, now I'm into, um, what am I into? I'm into feeling kind of empty mm-hmm. or numb yeah, or kind of dead inside. And then, it, and then it goes from there to feeling isolated and ultimately sometimes suicidal. Yeah. So, so what I'm listening for, to your question, what I'm listening for is where somebody is on that sequence. Right. So that so that I have a it's just a from a, it's my own mental map yeah. of of where someone is and what I believe I need to do to help them come back. So the the first thing that I want to have someone understand is that a lot of what's going on is that they're disconnected from themselves. Yeah. And that in essence our feelings are the I believe is the experience that gives us a sense of aliveness in the world. So no access to the feeling, then we don't we don't have an experience of aliveness. Yeah. So we can be physically alive, but there's this quality of kind of emotional deadness. Right. <clears throat> and so so my first thing would be to talk about this is what it will take to start to feel kind of alive again. Once you get that sense of aliveness not only are you then able to connect to yourself, you're able to connect to others. And then the bigger questions about purpose and meaning can follow. Right. So, so the first step for me is to make the point of about aliveness. The second would be to talk about our movement away from unpleasant feelings. And then it would be helping people start to um, move back into that and ex- explain how to go about that. Yeah. And you know, what a, what a wild world to guide someone into feeling those feelings that have been so unfeelable mm, until mm-hmm. now 
or mm-hmm. possibly now in those feelings that you find are the most unpleasant throughout you know the body of your work what would you say and i know you go into i believe it's eight sort of very right. common found unpleasant feelings what what have you discovered as you sort of found those eight unpleasant feelings well, as, as I did my work, I was writing them down. And so I probably wrote five and then six. And then right, I, got, I ended up landing on eight. Uh, and the eight that I always talk about are sadness, shame, helplessness, anger, vulnerability, embarrassment, disappointment, and frustration. Hmm. And, and again, the, the, what happens here is like, oh, okay, so why those eight? How come not anxiety? How come not fear? It's like, for me, it's these eight because they're the most common, spontaneous, everyday reactions to things not turning out the way that we want or the way that we believe we need them to turn out. So it's, it's the everydayness of the feelings that, uh, that uh, and again, these were the ones over and over that if someone didn't deal with them well, they didn't feel like they handled life well. Right. And so speaking of anxiety... Um, because, you know, so many, I feel like it, you know, so many of us use the word anxiety clearly, you know, if I go back to my twenties, you know, if there was a scale of anxiety, I lived on between one and 10, it was 11, half the week. How would you unpack anxiety? How would you say, you know, if anxiety doesn't make those eight unpleasant feelings, where does it live? Well, for me, anxiety is way too vague. So I actually happen to think that the the words fear and anxiety are overused and misused. Got it. So I'm not a real big fan of either one of those words. Love it. So so if I if I kind of walk down the scale, um, for me, it, it, let's start with fear because I think it'll make sense kind of going in order. Uh, it, fear being being the bigger one and the one that people always talk about. And that is that, well, they talk about anxiety too a lot. So that that fear, if you look at the way psychology talks about fear, fear is danger in the moment right now. <laughs> and my thinking is, if you are not in danger in the moment right now, there's no tiger chasing you, right? Yeah. You're not being pelted with tomatoes or, or worse, right? then stop using the word because words have vibration and they activate a state within us. Why activate the state of fear when you're really not in danger? And and how do you tell if you're you're not in danger? One, you'll know it, you're safe. The second is you're well resourced, right? Mm-hmm. You have family, you have friends, you have finances, um, you have food, and you have shelter. So you're you're probably in pretty good shape. Stop using the word fear. Then okay, then what's the next most logical one to use? Well, yeah. it's anxiety. Right. So again, if I turn to psychology and go, what does psychology say? Psychology says it's kind of this diffuse concern or broad-based concern about something bad or some bad events happening in the future. Okay, that fits. Right. Except if I were to ask 10, di- 10 different people what anxiety meant to them, I would typically get eight to 10 different answers. Right. Right. So then anxiety is a meaningless concept. Because it's different for every person. And what I found is that when you use the word anxiety or fear, it keeps things like a cloud, mm. right? They're, it's amorphous. You can't really put your hand on it and fix it and change it. And so what I found is that if I asked people to use one or more of the eight feelings that I mentioned, 
then the next most obvious one that, that people would actually probably be feeling is this sense of vulnerability. Hmm. And vulnerability, so again, my definition now is that it's this kind of both emotional and body awareness or body experience that one could be hurt. Right. Right? So so it's like, okay, and many people will go, so if I'm going up on stage to um, speak, uh, it, it's not that I'm fearful, and it's not that I'm anxious, it's that I feel vulnerable. Right. Right? Because I want something to turn out well, and if it doesn't turn out well, then I'll have to deal with one or more of the other seven feelings. Right. So right? it's almost like anxiety and fear, like the atmosphere or the clouds, and then you know all of these most common eight unpleasant feelings are like the trees of the forest. You know, it's like, you know, okay, that's great. We know you're sensing the clouds, but what tree? What tree is this? You know, it's a, right. It's right. humanizing, right? It, and it's yes, and it and it becomes manageable at that point. What I watch happen is that once somebody names what they're experiencing more accurately, right. they calm down. And they're willing to feel it eventually. And they're willing to feel it. Yeah. Exactly. So if it's not vulnerability, then I promise you it is one or more of the other seven feelings. Right. What would you say is the other most common unpleasant feelings that people use the blanket approach of saying it's fear or anxiety? Would you say it's any one of the other seven or do you think it's yeah it, yeah well no i think there are, are probably two or three that come up the most frequently i would say disappointment is big mm. lots of people can't stand feeling disappointed um uh, helpless is another mm. uh, a third is sad someone feeling sad and then the fourth would be someone being angry probably right that's fantastic i've never heard that perspective before i love that so in in your book 90 seconds to the yeah. to to the life you love. Uh-huh. Did I get that right? That's 90 seconds to a life you love. To a life. Yeah. There you go. Okay. Uh this is so fascinating to me cuz I I would love to hear how you arrived in 90. I'll just speak a little bit to my experience oh. with this. And this is probably why I was like I love Joan. <laughs> because the truth is most of the time I finally let myself feel what essentially I wasn't letting myself feel, especially right. in real time. Yep. It wasn't long that I started yeah. to at least come above the water. And at least with something like OCD, it's, it's so acute and, so, and robs so much of, the, of your mind-body moment. Um, yes that it can that can it just feel like you don't even know which way is up you can't remember what you were just doing uh and it's just that goes for anyone but i know at least with ocd at my worst it was so acute that i couldn't really see my next steps and it was right in that moment that if i once i made this turnaround i learned that well if i just lean into this and i don't do a behavior to mitigate the risk i don't try to relieve this i don't try to justify this i don't try to avoid this I just lean in and say, I'm going to take the risk of this sensation. And this might be real. This might not be, you know, let me live in that uncertainty, but let me mostly embrace fully how uncomfortable I am in my body and let me stay home in my body as that occurs. Then what I noticed when I got the courage to do that, it was in, you know, what you're proposing here, a minute and a half, um, where my 
a part of my consciousness would say, oh, I can handle this. Not in the mm-hmm. first couple minutes, though. It was sure. more just yeah. I was just taking a risk. Yep. yep. Um, how did you How did you get to this? How did you get to that title? And how did you get to that uh, understanding? Yeah. No. Well, the ninety seconds is not mine. So the, that's the first thing I like to say is that I I provide the the right attribution for this. Again, part of what I was onto at this point was a search on how I could help somebody lean into the unpleasant feelings. Yeah. And I was intuitively telling people to ride the waves. I kept, that's I, without the science. So in the early nineties, when this was all starting for me, I was, I, I would ride the waves, ride the waves, ride the waves. Yeah. And, and I would liken, I would liken feelings to being like ocean waves. Yes. So you're walking along the shoreline, you look at the shoreline and, and you see that the wave comes up and hangs for a moment and then it subsides. So that's what I would describe to people. Just imagine it's, it's coming up, right? It hangs and then it subsides and it will always subside. Hmm. And, and so that's what I was doing. And then again, the neuroscience started to come out. So the first point, we're all one interconnected whole. Second point, oh, most of us come to know what we're feeling and in, in, uh, know what we're feeling emotionally through bodily sensation. Third point, um, where, where I went and went the aha, and I went, oh, wait a minute. We're, it's not what we're afraid of feeling. It's a bodily sensation we don't want to experience, mm-hmm. right? And then I read Dr. Jill Bolte Taylor's work. And she wrote a book called My Stroke of Insight. And in the book, what she says is that, that when a feeling is triggered, that there's a rush of biochemicals into the bloodstream that activates bodily sensations. So it's the same bodily sensations we're talking about. Yeah. And that those same biochemicals will flush out of the bloodstream in roughly an upper limit of 90 seconds. <laughs> and it was like, oh, okay, I got it. So if I can let people know that it's a short-lived bodily sensation wave, and most people will say, well, I can do 90 seconds. And that's what most people say when I tell them. And now I have people leaning into the experience. And now they're at the foundational piece of congruence and authenticity and being able to use what they're experiencing to speak or to take action mm-hmm. or to, you know, the list goes on and on in terms of the positive benefits. Mm-hmm. Now they're being true to themselves. Amazing. And, and and that then is the launching pad for everything in the positive direction. So so let me get this, let me say this back to you as kindergarten Please. as I could possibly say it. Absolutely. I've, me right now, let's yeah. say, um, I'm feeling, I'm too afraid to feel disappointment. I've avoided it. I've boxed it out. I've tried to get on with my life. Things are bubbling. I'm getting overwhelmed. And all of a sudden I realize that I need to just allow myself to feel what's next, you know, what's what I'm avoiding. And yeah. as I approach it, I realize that it's disappointment. I'm really disappointed in how this weekend turned out, so to speak. Sure. And so I lean in. I let myself just be with it and just yeah. allow the bodily sensation. I allow myself to actually begin to digest the feeling that was just sort of awaiting me. Yep. That on the other side of allowing myself to do that is me again. Yes. Yes. That's yes. Uh, in, a, in a very significant way. It's you again. Yeah. 
So when we, we muster the courage and, you know, I, I kind of define courage as, you know, trust in action and there has uh-huh. to be a bridge point, right? And I remember, so, and this goes for any day, but particularly when I was really, really ill, my only bridge was trust and trust to say, well, what's going to happen if I let myself feel all that? Like what, I might be obliterated, right? I might... I might not just die. I might die a thousand deaths. You know, right, the, right. Like explosions level. are going to happen from the inside. Exactly. Yeah. That, yeah. you know, the magnitude of an OCD thread is like a thousand lifetimes infinity, you know, yeah. that, but it, again, the only, the only way we allow ourselves to do something that we can't see is going to turn out okay is trust yes. uh, and courage in action sort of, to me, gives it a practical approach to that, which what, yeah, what it meant was that. I'm going to face the, I'm going to face the wave. Well, what's going to yeah. happen? Well, I don't really know. It's going to hurt, probably. <laughs> <laughs> but I might, just like you said, the wave will subside. And um, so, what happens to to most people, and how 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 long? You know, f- at least with OCD, it can it can be easily you can easily obsess over kind of getting something right. How long do you allow yourself to feel something? For, but for most humans, you know, and uh, with moderate mental health, what would you? What would you suggest? Like, how long does one need to really just begin to embrace these unpleasant feelings before they can find that them themselves you know, again, so to speak? I, that one, I have to, I have to tailor a little bit because it, because then then we're looking again at life history, mm-hmm. right? So if I grew up in a family where my parents always shut down on feeling, then it's going to take me a little longer to probably practice getting in it and feeling it because they there were so many proscriptions against it. Yes. Or if I grew up in a family where it was explosive, right, and dangerous and violent or threatening, then I'm going to have a different set of reactions and I'm going to have to learn how to temper whatever's going on inside me mm-hmm. to regulate it or modulate it um, based on whatever that history is. So, but at the thing that I, I don't know that I, I, I would say it happens way more quickly than people think. Nice answer. I, I can't, I can't really put a time frame on it because some people can start to turn it around in the next few days. Yeah, it's true. It's right? true. And, and others, it, it's going to take practice. So what I always like to say is, is to think of one's capacity to, to handle feeling, to experience and move through feeling with, with greater ease. Mm. Think of that as a skill. It's, and, and just like any skill, skills take time to develop. Mm-hmm. And, and I would say the same thing is true in terms of one's ability to speak, that communication is a skill and that we take time to learn how to actually do that well. Yes. So, so, that, so that I would say it, it can happen quickly but that's going to de- also depend on one's motivation and the uh, kind of life experience that they're yeah. then bringing. To the and table. in some ways, the severity of how long they've been um, cut off from allowing one themselves to feel. To a, I would say yes to a degree, because when somebody's been cut off for a long, a long period, then I think what, what I tell individuals who've been like that, it, it, that they're kind of into that soulful depression place, if you will, that sometimes the um i'd like to think of it as a thawing out yeah right so that whatever time it takes to kind of unfreeze or to to thaw Mm. um you're you're like you're sort of warming up to yourself yeah would you say also joan that uh you know it's less like a, a diet like a period of time you know three weeks of allowing oneself to feel unpleasant feelings and then you can 
You don't have to again. To me, it's been a lifestyle shift. Yes. You know, one where I, on a daily basis, you know, reteach my body that feeling that's uncomfortable that you're telling me not to feel, that you're simultaneously, you know, sending me the biochemistry of discomfort and then also sending me the trigger, don't do, don't feel that, uh-huh. that I've been, you know, on a daily basis, you know, forming a new relationship to, right. to, to seeking out, leaning in. And um, strangely enough, almost, you know, eventually we, my experience is the more I've done that, the more, it's not that I've begun to enjoy unpleasant feelings, but I've begun to be so satisfied by my new relationship to unpleasant feelings that there's a satisfaction in being courageous enough to to not just be able to handle uh, those feelings, but to, to master being okay feeling them, that there's almost a satisfaction in built. Abs- absolutely. And part of that satisfaction, I think, leads into confidence. Exactly. Thank you for taking me there, because I was going to say, right. what so- awaits people? Yeah, right. So that's, I said, it, it's everything that's wonderful on the other side of it. And, you know, it's, I have to laugh because I, you know, the, I think the way I started my talks, I get excited about unpleasant feelings only because I know one, they, they exist on our behalf. They're, they're there for protective purposes. Yeah. So it's like, there's nothing bad and nothing negative. So my thing is ditch those words too. Mm-hmm. So ditch bad, negative fear and anxiety. Yeah. Okay. And, and embrace them because it they the whole range is the experience of aliveness in you yes. and it leads to congruence and congruence leads to confidence mm. so so it's I, I want people to do that and i want to add one other piece in terms of leaning in um too because i think this will be helpful when, when you start if you're not someone who's used to feeling then what i would say is as you start to do this as you make the decision and kind of go all right i'm gonna I'm going to have that courage, that leap of faith that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And that that what you do is as you start to recognize you're reacting to something, take some deep breaths, deep, slow breaths. And use the your breath as kind of the surfboard to ride the feeling. Or let Beautiful. the feeling ride on your breath. So that so that that's how that's how you're going to kind of stay present to the feeling. Then, if you have the opportunity, pause for a moment. Just give yourself kind of a mental pause and go, uh, okay, got this. I'm, I'm staying present to the feeling. And then, if you have an opportunity to reflect, then go, huh, I wonder what triggered me. Hmm. I wonder what this is about. I wonder what this is connected to. Hmm. And if you have a lot of time to kind of stay in that place of reflection, then go, eh, I wonder if there's any pattern to what I'm experiencing. Mm. Or um, I, I wonder if this is connected to the past in some way. Right? So there's opportunities then to actually then make use of what you're feeling. So think of, think of again, the whole range of what you feel, pleasant and unpleasant, is it's a, it's a resource pool of information for you. Yeah. And if you cut off the unpleasant, you've only got 50% of your resource pool. Again, you allow yourself to experience it then, and you stay present to it. Now you're in a place where you can gain insight. And once you gain insight, then you have those feelings available for making decisions, for expressing yourself or for taking action. So it's a, it sort of completes the cycle. 
Yes. Oh, Jaron, speaking my language and, you know, from a, from a voice perspective, uh, you know, people come and work with my brother and I, you know, along the songwriter's journey or in other programs and, you know, really to utilize voice as a medium of self-discovery. Yes. And sometimes they come to, you know, quote unquote, sing better, but mostly to, to, to form a new relationship to, to what it is within them that needs expressing. And, you know, time and time again, uh, as human beings, if we haven't been allowing ourselves to feel everything, we realize something like song asks us to feel everything of all things. Yep. And so it's just such a beautiful joy to see someone realize, well, in the safe container of song, maybe it's really okay to feel desperate, vulnerable, and sad. Mm-hmm. And so no wonder we've had this, you know, incredible thing called song and music, you know, throughout humanity um, to allow us to feel what may have been unfeelable to that moment as a behavioral coach. And, you know, I'm just embarking on my, uh, behavior, uh, world. I see into, into my future on this. And to me, my, you know, my hope is that we won't need song only that we can actually just on a daily basis. And you're such a stand and a leader for this to, to actually begin to enjoy this huge chunk of the emotional expression wheel, which we deemed unpleasant, mm-hmm. or like you said, negative, uh, fear mm-hmm. and anxiety. We kind of gave like, you know, we kind of judged it out of the wheel we want to feel. Right. Yes. Rather what occurs when we allow ourselves again to be open to feeling at all. And uh, I couldn't agree more that on the other side of being open to feeling it all again is, is everything that you are. And that, that, uh, I even proposed that, you know, we were completely born with every feeling in our paint set and nature designed us to feel them all yes, and to correct. never lose them and never have to have them go on hold or mute or offline. And right. yeah. as they come back in, so do you. I love that so much. I'm just so thrilled you you exist in this world uh, doing that. I, I wanted to ask you and uh, just a little bit about what in your book you refer to releasing anxiety. And I, I know I, in and around the OCD world or in mental illness, you know, so often we want to fix the problem and get back to life. You mm-hmm. know, I want to mm-hmm. be how I used to be, you know, that kind of thing. How, how, do you, how have you sort of approached people's desire to fix and sort of be back in their life? Um, have you noticed that that kind of gets in the way of leaning in and letting it letting unpleasant feelings take, you know, months or years to, to approach. Do, do you feel like, I, I guess I want just to ask you about the kind of, it's sort of an OCD question really, but how do we allow something that we want to go away, um, be released without becoming obsessed about getting rid of it would be my kind of question. Well, it's not, again, it's not anything to get rid of. So that, exactly. that, <clears throat> If we, if you understand that emotion um, is, you know, Dan Siegel talks about emotion as a, both integrating and integrative. That that so it's it's both it's both kind of the process and the endpoint at the same time, um, and and so we there there isn't a time that we're ever going to get rid of feeling, mm-hmm. kind of period end of story. Yeah. So so that it is. It is part of our aspect of, of of what it is to feel human. 
and to, to feel human and to feel alive. So the first thing I would say is uh, no can do, right? You, you know, in fact, there's a, there's somebody that gives a Ted talk that talks about people wanting to shut down in the way that you're describing. And she, what I remember her saying is that those are, those are the dreams of dead people. Yeah. Right. So if you're, if you want to get rid of all that stuff, you're not alive period. Right. So, so my first thing is it's not going to happen. No, it's not going to happen. And so then your next best choice is to go, all right, what do I need to do to embrace this? So happy you said that. And to, and to welcome it into my life. Exactly. Right. So, so the, it really is understanding that, that, that this, this is the essence of your aliveness and humanness. Mm. And you don't, you don't think without feeling. Totally. Right. We don't, we don't create memories without feeling. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, we, certain kinds we do, but because there's different there's different ways that we that we have experiences traumatic ones get get anchored into the brain in a slightly different way than everyday memories do without any kind of trauma attached so but in general feeling is associated with memory yes right so so there's not a time that memory of that feeling won't exist for us exactly so that that would be the starting point for me that's beautiful yeah when people and you refer to sort of releasing anxiety. What would you say? Would you say that's the same process essentially of just sort of leaning into allowing yourself to experience? Well, again, it's it's it, for me. It's kind of stepping into your into my point of view about what anxiety really is. Exactly. And and I and I look at anxiety as uh, again this this vague notion's too vague. So the second part then is that um, that probably it's a, a, a well. For me, it's a cover over the eight unpleasant feelings. Yeah. So the first thing I want to do is to ask somebody what they're really feeling. I usually say, I'm going to take all the words for anxiety that, uh, that sound like anxiety away from you. Exactly. And and it, so I want you to tell me what really might be feel, you might be feeling. And I'll offer up the eight as a possible start. Usually they're feeling one or more of them. And, and now we're to the real thing. Uh, or to the real experience. And then what, again, once they're at the real experience, they feel calmer. The, the other is that uh, what's interesting to me, and I think you'll really love this part, is that I also look at anxiety as unexperienced and unexpressed mm. feeling, which takes us right back to the voice piece. Wow. Right? Unexperienced and, and unexpressed, unexpressed feelings. Yes. <sighs> That's good. Right. And so why, I mean, the energy has to go someplace. People turn it inward as opposed to outward many times where it belongs. Right. Or they they turn it inward in an attempt to not feel it, do something to distract from it, and now they're feeling anxious as opposed to feeling calm because they've let themselves, to your point, go through the disappointment, right? Right. So, uh, and, and my experience is that when someone allows themselves to both experience and express what's going on, that they feel way more comfortable in their own skin. Right. They become heard, become seen, and their body begins to, you know, deal with them, right? Flush out those sensations, flush out those feelings, right. uh, digest. And, and, and in my experience, you know, with trauma, it's sort of the same thing as just more acute, right? I mean, it's just going to, something that was left undigested for long enough to cause the wound in the first place. So, right. you know, what do we do with wound healing? We we give it longer, more air, more care, and more opportunity to be expressed now over and over again, you know? Right, 
right. until the scar begins to take shape and heal and as best it can. Would you say that our ability to show up time and time again and form the kind of relationship with being uncomfortable, of, that's one of leaning in healthy, riding the waves. Would you say that in and of itself is what you mean by resilience? And I would say that's a part of resilience. I look at, uh, I look at our ability to experience the unpleasant feelings as, and, and that sense of being able to handle them as the, a foundational element of resilience. Got it. But I don't see it singularly as the thing, because I think that there are both um, activities that we can engage in that help us feel more resilient. So, you know, if we look at even the basics of sleep, right, or sunlight or exercise or uh, great nutrition or those kinds of things, there are activities we can engage in that help us, our bodies actually feel more resilient and have the resources that the body itself proper, the body proper itself needs. Yes. But I also think that that attitudes, beliefs, and questions can make a difference in terms of our resilience. So I, so I, it's what I call it again, it's what I call kind of um, it's resilient thinking, but it encompasses what I would say resilient attitudes and beliefs and resilient questions. So what I mean by that is that, <clears throat> so um, I uh, hold the attitude that I'm going to turn every life experience into a learning experience. Mm -hmm. That would be that would be a resilient attitude, or I'm going to persevere even when I'm frustrated, or want to step back from something. Right. So those are those are attitudes or beliefs that I can hold that keep me on a path. Yes. Or even I'm open to asking for help when I need it, would be a resilient attitude or belief, and, right. and to let myself be vulnerable in that way, and then to ask. To me, that's also. <clears throat> both kind of an attitude and an activity. The the other has to do for me with resilient questions. So I can also prime my brain to put me in a resilient state. So so that might be, um, how can I use this experience to bring out the best in me? Hmm. Would be a resilient, uh, like it fosters resilience for me to ask that kind of a question. Yeah. Or uh, what's another one that I could do? Uh, and, how um, how do I want to show up? Right. Right. Who do I want to be and how do I want to show up? Those are questions that I can prime my brain with to keep me in a resilient state of mind. That's amazing. It's amazing that we, we each always have a choice, uh, not to the circumstances we find ourselves in, but to the choices we make, to the mind and body sets we place ourselves in. You know, and right. One of those, and maybe that first port of call, that that most you know human biological native state is to allow ourselves again to feel the, the discomfort right, right. Uh, and once we've done that we're even more willing to to create you know resilient questions re resilient states uh, of being in our day right and you know i would i would say not always and i'm not i'm I, it wasn't always a conscious thing but during my experience with my son uh, and my son was born with a brain injury, as you know, and passed away right. after 14 months. I made a really specific choice with my wife right at the darkest, deepest crossroads that the two choices in front of me were fall into a pit of despair when mm. the top doctors in America said, mm, mm-hmm, 
like you know right in that moment when the authorities you were hoping would give you some answer that you were hoping for all shrugged their shoulders and became meek and were waiting for the other to speak and uh, my father came out and he looked at me with tears in his eyes and he came to hug me and my whole body went thanks dad but no I'm going to choose to live my life to the fullest with Jack. Mm. He's not a tragedy, he's a miracle. Mm. And I'm going to be with him for as long as I can, uh, if that's a lifetime or a short time. And I, and to be honest, I didn't have the answer for what it would feel like to do either of those, to, to mm. what it would mean to have an ad, adult son in a bed versus a son I remember. I don't know if I had the capacity to truly understand what I was committing to, but what I committed to in that moment, Joan, was was the resilient path. Yeah, oh my God, profound, yeah. And that's, and that, and it found me and it got me and it was, I think still my, my proudest choice I've ever made. That's powerful. And it became our lives and we lived and celebrated him, you know, in every moment, so, um, without having the mental health, the emotional health, through forming any relationship to uncomfortable feelings, there's not a chance I could have done that. Um, personally, anyway, in that sure. moment. But, um, I just wanted to share that because you made me think of it, you know, we have that possibility not not to choose our circumstances, but to choose our oh, modes of being. So, yeah, so, oh my God, so touching. Yeah, yeah, beautiful, beautiful. Thank you. And yes. Look at look at what it invited into what it invited you into, in terms of the fullness of your own, like response that way. It's like oh, it really did, and uh, I'll be forever grateful to him and to to all those that supported us and and to myself for making that resilient choice. It yeah. it still feeds me today, and I and I feel like maybe in your work, you know, as a as a speaker, as an author, you know, as a psychologist, would you I, my experience as someone who's come through such a critical case of mental illness was I realized the greatest currency that I could find, and, and I'd love to share hear from you on this, was not money, uh, was not someone else's, uh, you know, any accolade or acclaim. It was being proud of myself that when I let myself be uncomfortable and, and move through unpleasant feelings and realize that I could actually handle it, I remember it was almost like this sack of gold was sitting you know, at my feet and it was like, this is yours. And I just, to this day, I've never found a greater currency than the feeling of being proud of myself after going and riding a big set of stormy waves of unpleasant feelings. Uh, would you say you've seen that show up, not just in your life, but to all the people that you've helped? And uh, I would absolutely agree with you. And again, I, this is... To me, this is what brings us back to ourselves, right? So once you realize that you could do it, it is the pot of gold. It's like, this is me. It's yeah. like, oh, I have me back, Yes. right? Now I know what it is to be me living in me yes. or living with me, right? So, so yeah, it's the absolute pot of gold. And, and this is the first, the first, if there's a path we have to take, this is the first path we take. Yeah. 
Yeah. So it's like, uh, yeah, I want to celebrate with you. Right. right? Yeah. It's, so, like, yeah, it's, it's like, the, hell yes. It is. <laughs> it's the realization that you can handle you. Exa- exactly. That no matter once, what, that you would be able to handle what it feels like. Exactly. And and for me, that's like the, the, the way I phrase it um, is that if you can ride one or more short-lived bodily sensation waves of one or more of eight unpleasant feelings, you can go pursue anything you want in life. Right? Because yes. you've got, you, you've, that's the pot of gold. Yeah. Is being able to, you handle that, you basically got life. Yes. Now, now it's what kind of imprint do I want to put on it? I mean, there's some other skills yeah. and you and I share the, a love that's tied to speaking. And speaking for me is like a, you, if, if titanium or platinum is better than gold, or I don't know what the deal is here, or it's equal to gold, then speaking would be the, the other piece of this. Be, um, because it's not, it, it, this, the, the feeling piece is critical. It's essential. You can't go, you can't get away from it. No. But the next most important piece is speaking. Yeah. And and that that it's get it is woven in with the feeling piece, mm-hmm. and once people start to understand speaking, it's like it's like um, kind of game on, yes. right? Or all either all bets are off or game on. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so um, because it's that it, it, the speaking to me is equally as important as the being able to embrace unpleasant. Mm. And when you speak when you speak to speaking. Yes. Uh, are you referring directly to people being able to speak up and yes. share who they are, how they feel, uh, what willingly to, to actually yes. share their experience in front of others in some capacity in their life? Right. So so if you'll allow me to go here. Please. <laughs> it's spe- it, I think about it as either speaking your truth or speaking with ease, right? right? So that you can make the choice to say what you want to say, when, where, with whom, right? All those kinds of pieces with one caveat and the caveat is it has to be positive kind and well-intentioned so just because you can speak your truth doesn't mean you get to just you know willingly and maliciously say whatever you want to say to whomever and whenever no 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 well-intentioned right kind and well-intentioned is the caveat around this piece so and and that's that's my bottom line across the board i don't care where we are unless we're in danger got it that's kind of again that's kind of the that's the mental set i impose on it for myself i like it so so that but it's it's really understanding to me there's like nuances to this whole idea of speaking up because people think about their difficulty speaking up as a speaking problem Hmm. right and i difficulty speaking up is not a speaking problem Difficulty speaking up is a difficulty with unpleasant feeling. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Right. Yes. It's because in order for me to initiate and to speak with you, I have to be willing to deal with the discomfort of my own emotional discomfort. Mm-hmm. So think the eight unpleasant feelings. Yep. Well, if I'm going to be in conversation and you have your own set of feelings, 
then not only do I have to deal, deal with the discomfort of my own emotional discomfort, eight unpleasant feelings, I have to deal with the discomfort of your emotional discomfort, the same eight unpleasant feelings simultaneously, right? Yeah. So having initiating and having conversations has to do with a willingness to be to deal with those those same eight mm -hmm. unpleasant feelings. To essentially be to be open to being uncomfortable at any moment. Yes. That you yes. Are. And I'm yes, and I'm not just talking about the conflict kind, right? Or the asking the boss for the raise kind. It could be the kind that says, you know what, I love spending time with you. Can we spend more time together? Mm. Or or I love you or I like you or you know, whatever. Right? So it's it's the whole again, the whole range. Yeah. Of our vulnerability being expressed in the world. Totally. You know, in our work it's you know, inviting inviting someone home you know, in this whole body instrument they've been gifted, you know, which is, you know, the environment of their mind and body and, and all of the feeling, sensation, emotions that arise either automatically or by, by conscious choice to move toward the experiences, right? And once home in that body and that this body speaks the language of experience, which is exactly how you speak of it, which I love, that when we move to have an experience in front of someone else, uh, where we're simply inviting them to witness us have an experience. And when someone reorients themselves to speaking or singing from that place, their whole world opens up mm -hmm. that they can yet again have the vulnerability to be witnessed having an actual experience. Well, what, what can actually go away entirely is any need to perform whatsoever. Right. Right. That there's no need to perform because we're too busy having a real experience and that's what we're really thirsty for. So right. I feel like we've come all the way, you know, full circle to that is that if you can allow yourself to feel all of those uncomfortable, unpleasant things or be willing to, if they arise right. and you're willing to actually show up and truly have an experience in front of someone else with your voice, um, that you as front and center, the you that you truly are, that, mm -hmm. that is satisfying. Uh, is present again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Joan, is there anything else we'd you'd love to cover today? It's just been so fun speaking with you. Well, let me. Well, let me add. I would like to add a couple more pieces Please. to this because, and again, part of it is because I know that the speaking and the voice piece is so important to you as well. Please, please. And and that that my thing around the speaking as well is that that we. I used to think that. The, the reason we speak up is to get what we want. And I stopped believing that. So now I see the importance of speaking up to get what we want as the benefit, not the goal. Mm -hmm. And my whole thing now with someone speaking up and learning how to do that or allowing themselves to move into that and make that choice yeah. is to understand that the reason you speak up is to grow you. Mm. It's to evolve you. And if you don't use your voice, you don't integrate the feelings and the experience and the thinking and the feeling all important. You don't integrate all of that yes. in the same way as when you put voice to it. That's beautiful. And, and so the reason you speak up, even when you don't want to, or even when you think it's going to be low value, is to grow you. Mm. If you get what you want, then you gain a certain measure of confidence, a different kind of confidence from that. And if you don't get what you want, 
then you it's a double or a triple win because not only did you speak up which is a win in and of itself you didn't get what you wanted which is a win um and be, why because you have to deal with the unpleasant feelings that came about because of that and when you do that that's a win it's a win, so win, it's a win. different it's a different measure of confidence so there's three ways to kind of, in my mind to kind of grow your confidence when you when you start speaking that's fantastic well it's a it's a, a non-attached to the result uh take on expression right right that's fantastic i love how you put that ah well joan thank you so much for joining me and us today um what's there's so many things you're up to in the world please um if you haven't already uh, look for dr joan rosenberg what's the best way for us to find you but, well, uh, that would be the best way, Dr. John Rosenberg, in terms of uh, that being a handle across the different social media platforms, so Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and uh, LinkedIn. The other would be certainly my website, drjohnrosenberg.com. And if you punch in my name, you're bound to see a LinkedIn learning course, your two TED Talks, and oh, yeah. who knows what. And your so, book, 90 Seconds the to book, a Life. Nine, the book, 90 Seconds to a Life You Love. Life. And I'll, I also am um, starting to do more courses, so I would say people come to the site to start to watch for that. Oh, I'd love to learn more. I'll be in your course as soon as, as, soon as it's there. It's okay. been such a pleasure to have you today. Likewise, and, it's just and, a, it's a treat. Oh, my treat. And look forward to more conversations and being out there in the world. Uh, being a stand with you on embracing unpleasant feelings. You just made my day. And I'm sure awesome. you've made many others with your incredible insights. Thank you so much. Thank you, Joan. Much. This is Embracing Crazy. Thank you. See you next time.